Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. It's an honor to have Jason Hines with me. And um, I want to welcome you to the Adventist Voices podcast, Jason. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. So you wrote an article recently for Spectrum, uh, part of your um, regular column series titled Liberation and Reconciliation. And I wanted to uh, talk about that in part because it um, sets up some really important ideas and tensions that we'll be talking about for our upcoming conference. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what led you to write your recent column? Sure. I actually had the opportunity uh, to do a guest presentation at a Sabbath school at a local church that focuses on uh, faith leaders and, and topics of faith. They don't follow the standard Sabbath school lesson. And I was asked to step in for one of the regular presenters. And the subject that week happened to be the life of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And I guess I'm probably more familiar uh, than the average person walking down the street with his biography but I certainly hadn't dealt with it in any level of depth. So I did my homework and did that presentation and it went over pretty well. And one of the questions that I had at the end was why is it we haven't done something like truth and reconciliation, which uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu spearheaded in the uh, wake of of their successful struggle against apartheid in South Africa. Why didn't we do something like that here in the United States? Why haven't we done something like that in the Adventist church, which certainly has a complicated racial history, the vestiges of which um, sit with us in America to this day. And so as I was looking for something to write about, I usually try to be topical with what I do in my regular spectrum column. And in terms of wanting to do something topical, there wasn't something very hot button that I wanted to spend a lot of time on. Not that there weren't things that could be talked about, but nothing that I wanted to devote my entire column to. So uh, what had happened recently with Donald Trump and uh, these four Congresswomen, uh, women sort of became a footnote to what I was doing in that piece, uh, a bridge as it were, but really in that piece, I wanted to sort of ask the question or make the recommendation that truth and reconciliation, what they were doing in post-apartheid South Africa is something that we should be trying to do here, both in our nation and in our church. Yeah, um, you say topical, I say prophetic, because <laughs> these issues have only become more important in the last uh, few days. Um, so let's jump into your argument a little bit. 
um, because you weave together a couple of great ideas that comes out of um, South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And then you bring in a little bit of a kind of American homegrown um form of Christian thought, black liberation theology. And then you bring in a kind of larger concept of Ubuntu. So can you talk a little bit about how you mix these uh, together? Yeah. And, and all the credit really goes to the archbishop for this. I mean, what I'm doing in the piece is sort of just laying out uh, his theology uh, and, sure. and certainly, and certainly subsuming it uh, or assuming it as something that I think has value. But it's really uh, our, the bishop who is is looking at these two different strains of African uh, of the African diaspora in terms of theological thought and saying these things can be married together. So, first, this very African American. Uh, view of theology that we call uh, black liberation theology that looks at God as the advocate for the oppressed. So when we tell the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible is God on the side of the oppressed and against oppressors. And that's a very cogent and of course um, pointed critique to white America, to white Americans, to white Christians, to say this book that you revere, would you be the people that God sides with or the people that God sides against? And and remember that you're part of the group that is oppressing my people. Yeah. So so throughout the throughout the biblical story, you so from literally from almost Genesis to Revelation, you are seeing God step in on the side of oppressed people. Now, usually uh, those oppressed people are the children of Israel, but there is even a section in the prophetic works of the Old Testament where Israel becomes the oppressor and the oppressed become the poor, the widow, the, the fatherless, the, you know, all of these downtrodden groups that when Israel as a nation is at its zenith, has forgotten. Yeah. And, and the prophetic tradition is a tradition of remember these people do justice. I, I sort of end the piece with Micah, uh, Micah five, mm-hmm. eight or six, eight rather, which is one of my favorite uh, texts throughout the Bible, but it is, it is a summary of the prophetic call, right? To do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly. And even when Israel is at its Zenith, it becomes the oppressor who needs to be reminded by prophets like Micah. This is what serving the Lord is about. This is what God is requiring of you. And so black liberation takes that principle and stretches it to epic proportions by saying, this is the story of the Bible, not just one little thing that you can forget about, but it is actually the story of the text. So now you take that, you take the justice that liberation theology is, is, is centered around. And you marry it with this concept of community, which is this African theological principle, this principle of Ubuntu that says, because you are, I am. Mm-hmm. This, this idea that I cannot define myself unless I define myself 
within the concept of community. And what that does is it raises all of us to this equal plane because I can only call you inhuman or less than human if I'm willing to call myself less than human. Yeah. Because we are all connected. We are one large family. And that interconnectedness means that social harmony has to be at the top of our, has to be on the top of our list of things that we need to be concerned about. Because if everybody in society isn't doing well, then none of us are. Because the only reason I am what I am is because we are what we are. So if there are those among us who are poor, then we are poor. If there are those among us who are oppressed, then we are oppressed. And if I'm the one doing the oppressing, I am in no better position than the person that I am oppressing. I am just as downtrodden. I am just as problematic. I cannot put myself above you because the only reason I am is because we are. Yeah, that's such a beautiful biblical concept that um, I think is um, really um, misunderstood in Adventist circles because we've for so long um, been about a kind of rational understanding of truth mm-hmm. and kind of trying to logically link together proof texts. Um, and I know I'm being reductive there, but it just strikes me as so interesting when I hear um people talking about social justice, um, advocating for a kind of harmony for Adventists. That is often like a thing that we expect in heaven, right? but we don't really envision it here on earth um, for a variety of kind of interesting reasons. But um, I love that you're kind of calling us back to that. But here's a, here's the fascinating thing about it to me though, Alex, is that, and, and this is something that I've been wrestling with, for a long time, which is how do we, because I, I, you know, I come from a strain of Adventism, right? So I am totally down with a rational, logical, theological understanding. That is something that is sort of deep within my spiritual DNA. I'm not willing to necessarily reject that or, or move away from that too strongly. But what I am sure. willing to do is say, how does that affect community? Hmm. And is there a way for us to hold to a, a particular theological understanding, but then also be willing to be dismissive of that understanding for the sake of community? It isn't, mm-hmm. it isn't that we shouldn't have a logical understanding. It's that that logical understanding should not supersede an an idea of us being bound together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a human family. So I can believe what I believe about, I'll pick something innocuous to stay away from, from, from the really sensitive subjects. I can believe what I believe about how people should dress. Right. Which is a, which is, uh-huh. a, which is a real thing in Adventism, right? So yeah. I can believe what I believe about how people should dress. But you know what? As much as I believe that, 
It doesn't mean you can't come into my church. It doesn't mean I can't sit next to you. It doesn't mean that the first thing out of my mouth has to be scorn and derision about what you're wearing. (laughs) Sure. Because the community is more important than how I feel about how you're dressed. And we all prioritize our beliefs. We don't sit here and say, I believe all of my beliefs equally. That's not true. So, so because we know that there's going to be a prioritizing going on, why can't the priority be for community, for interconnectedness, as opposed to the Sabbath? Like I'm willing to, I'm willing to sit with differentiation in how we observe the Sabbath because you and I as being brothers and sisters in Christ and being in community and being in this belief thing together is more important than whether you go to Fridays for lunch after church. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, as I understand, um, as black liberation theology is being articulated by James Cone and others, mm-hmm. um, it really is coming out of a kind of a tension within the African-American community, which has grown up with the civil rights movement, but is moving into a kind of larger uh, identity consciousness um, that is focused on kind of cultural heritage that is kind of separate from the Christianity that they um, were a part of. And so, you know, black liberation theology is kind of um, kind of bringing together identity um, outside of religious identity with that kind of Christianity and kind of knits that together. Um, And I only bring that, or I bring that up because I feel like Adventism might be uh, experiencing something like that, where we, Adventism is this sort of American um, uh, form of thought and practice that has been spread around the world in, in really interesting ways. And we're starting to see some tensions um, that go from things like women's mm-hmm. ordination to uh, fights in churches over control between local and conference union division levels, um, tensions within the church between unions and divisions and the general conference. And then I think in um, a lot of individuals who are in America looking at what's happening under Trump and feeling like they are not just normally marginalized, but now shockingly uh, treated. Combine that with Black Lives Matter and all this rhetoric against immigrants. Um, so it's a it's a hellscape, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering um, what does Adventism? Is there something emerging for um, folks in Adventism who are trying to wrestle with this, where they're kind of maybe knitting together? Um, uh, a way for Adventists to say, hey, Adventist identity is important to me. I don't have to lose it, but I really care about um, the marginalized, including myself. And we're here, you know, watching 
um, police brutality happen to someone who looks like me or my friends is um, is so horrific that I want to do something about it. But Adventism hasn't really given me the language for it yet. Yeah, that, and and I don't and I don't even know that it's the the well. Yes, it certainly is the language, but I also think it's that that is a that is a strain of Adventism that has been uh, ignored, um, that has been sort of lost uh, in in where Adventism sort of finds itself in this particular space in this particular moment. So when you see people calling for a revolution in Adventism, or when you see people uh, saying that social justice is something that Adventists can be a part of, when, when you even say I'd be willing, and I don't think any of them would, uh, uh, I don't know how far any of them would go for in what I'm about to say, but I think you even see something like that, sort of going on in what in what the one project was doing you know th- this 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 mm, idea sure. that we are losing not just the sense of community but also we're losing sort of the essence of what faith in Jesus is supposed to be about and that it's become at least in its most public form of Adventism, let's put it that way, about protecting ourselves as opposed to opening ourselves and being vulnerable. Hmm. So when you see a call for social justice in Adventism, when you see a call for revolution in Adventism, I think what you're really seeing, and this is just my take on it, like I don't talk to the people who are doing those particular things uh, directly, so I don't claim any any particular knowledge. Uh, but I think really what you're calling for, what you see the call is for, is for uh, a return, I would argue, to... Uh, to a time when we were not as concerned about being us, whatever that means, but returning to a time when Jesus was really at the center of what we were trying to accomplish in the world. And that is a thing that every institution has to wrestle with is what do you do when you've become this solidified thing that you now want to protect, when you move from being a movement to being an institution, that difficulty is, is something that every movement has to wrestle with. And Adventism is coming to that movement, to that question now in a lot of ways because Adventism hasn't been around as long. <laughs> and, and so we're, we're coming yeah. to this question sort of after a lot of other Christian faith traditions in America because we're younger. And, and so I see this as a really important moment in Adventism when we're going to decide what we are, whether we're, whether we're the type of religion that is more concerned about itself and making sure the things that we have gathered 
for ourselves in the last 150, 155 years, uh, whether we're more concerned about protecting what we've already conquered, as it were, um, or whether we're about opening the kingdom of God to everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, sexuality, um, gender, etc. Are we going to create space yeah. in Adventism for those for those people who, who who are those people, those people who are not us? However, each individual Adventist would define what us is, because I think if you and I sat down and, and we tend to be fairly simpatico, but if, if if we were to sit down and decide and try and decide the question of who is an Adventist, we would have different opinions about that. So however we're defining us, the question is whether we're going to let people who are not us in. And I think it's really important for us to get this, to get this right, which of course is the one thing about Adventism, right? We want to get it right. It's important for us to get this right because that question is the question of Christianity and the question of the gospels is sort of Jesus answering the question by letting everybody in. Whether you're a Syrophoenician woman, whether you're a Roman centurion, whether you are a tax collector, whether you are a dude is going to embezzle from the movement and try to use it for his own purposes. Right. (laughs) All of those people get a seat at the table. Yeah. And I would argue that they have to, because only by allowing people to sit at the table, do you allow the spirit of God to, to move. But the seat has to be granted first. I don't know what else to say other than that, Alex. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me um, read uh, part of a sentence in which from your article, just to sort of wrap this up, I've got one um, kind of direct question. You say a truth and reconciliation project would be a good vehicle for um, this church. And you say it would be wonderful if this church could find the collective will to have an open, honest dialogue on how the racism in our spiritual body harms us. Um, And so maybe to, to wrap this up and to kind of, it it would be in a ellipsis. Would you, um, maybe help folks start to think about how racism oh, goodness. harms um, Adventism. Let me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's ask me it's something a, harder, Alex. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so so let me, let, me, let me say something because uh, while we're sitting here talking about this piece, there's something that I don't want to get lost here, um, and I actually think it kind of gets lost in my piece. So allow me to fix it a little bit. Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the things that I think is fascinating about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is not just about a conversation. And so in that introductory paragraph, you see that there are actually three committees to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The one that gets the most publicity is the Amnesty Committee, which is the place where perpetrators got a chance to be absolved if they just 
said what they did. Yeah. But what's most fascinating to me about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is that there are actually two other things going on at the same time. There's a human rights violations committee that is actually trying to find out what happened. What were the harms that were done? And then there's a reparation and rehabilitation committee that is trying to compensate victims for their suffering. So this isn't about the reason why I came to this is because this isn't just about having a conversation. Right. This is just about saying what happened. It's also about people actually going to find out what the harms were and actually trying to make people whole. So when you ask me the question, how does racism harm the body? And I think this is a truth both for our nation and for our church. Racism harms the body because it gives people, a certain group of people, a subconscious or unconscious understanding that they are the center of existence. Mm. And that runs counter to the idea of the of community that a church is supposed to be trying to create, but that also a nation is supposed to be trying to create. A nation is just one large community of people bound by the citizenship of being part of that polity. And to say to one group of people in there, subconsciously, you are better than other people who are in this community with you. To say in a church, you are better. We will center you. The things that come from your culture are the things that we are going to deem important. We're going to say that your music is holy or at least holier than their music. Yeah. Your liturgy is holier than their liturgy. When they, when they want to be equal, when, when they want to be equal, we will send them away because we don't want to do the work of making them equal with us. That's what, that's what a segregated conference structure is. It's not, mm-hmm. let's empower you to do your own thing. That's not what that was. That's what it's become. Because those people took it and made it successful. But that wasn't what it was. That's not what its intention was. Its intention was, we will not do the work of making you equal with us. Yeah. You can't pastor us. You can't be Mm -hmm. the president of a conference over us. Because you're not equal with us. So instead of doing that work, which I would argue is the work of Jesus Christ. Mm, okay, this one got me. Okay, that's the work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's it. the work of Jesus Christ <laughs> to, to say, none of you in this body, there is no Jew or Greek. 
In this body, there is no black and white. In this body, there is no male or female. A female can be a pastor of you because in this body, there is no division. But instead of doing that work, what did they say in 1944? In 1944, they said, no, go do your own thing. Go rule yourselves because you, we will not allow you to rule us. We will not create an environment such that a black person could be the leader of us. So go lead yourselves. And the colloquial and the colloquial story um, or the apocryphal story, uh, and I say I can't, I can't uh, determine whether this is true or not, is that the belief was that they would not have been successful, that they were not going to be successful. We'll give it to them. They'll fail. They'll be back. Which is a racist thought in and of itself, right? You, no, you guys can't run a conference. You'll be back. And we haven't yeah. been back. <laughs> like, yeah. And what makes it and what makes it funny, Alex, is now <laughs> the, the, the sons and daughters of those people will now tell black Adventists that it's racist for them to be separated from them. Like, yeah, <laughs> and that and that we should come home. But once again, all of that is this racist thought of once again, subconsciously and unconsciously, I am better than you. You have to come back to me. I don't have to move. You have to move. I don't have to change anything about the way that I am. You have to do all the changing for me. Even though we kicked you out, you have to come yeah. back. <laughs> that's racism. And that's how racism hurts the body. That. Because it does the opposite. It does the opposite of what Jesus was trying to do. Yeah. I. We are all equal at the foot of the cross and racism tells us that we are unequal. <laughs> it makes you wonder how churches are racist in the first place. I appreciate how you um, mix uh, power discourses into the, into that there's, there's um, behind that, um, sort of separation is is a fear of sharing not just community, but let's be real. It's about sharing access to power. Oh, I mean that's what th that's what this is about. So so now so now take something else. Take women's ordination and think about that mm -hmm. from that dynamic. You got all these. You mm, forgive me my colloquialisms. You you got all these. <laughs> chauvinistic men who are totally not going to give themselves an environment where a woman might lead them. Yeah. Not on their watch. And that's not what they, that's not what they'd say, but that's why I'm telling you this stuff is insidious because it is subconscious and it is unconscious. I don't think that a lot of these people know that this is what it is, but that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, since um, we have 
just barely scratch the surface here, a sense that um, Adventism really needs to confront these realities. And, you know, as you point out, we can barely get women basic equality in ministry uh, and much less begin to address these sort of deeper decades long structural um, policy power structure uh, divides in the church. I'm wondering if we waved a magic wand and a general conference session got rid of a lot of the, since you're being colloquial, I will too, the, the, um, (laughs) the wizard of Oz, um, show that happens where people think that they're making decisions and having discussions when they're basically just um, voting on preordained uh, conclusions. What would happen if there was something like, you know, a truth and reconciliation commission that involved um, not just a kind of honest discussion of race and its abusive effects in the church, but also put forward some sorts of solutions. Can you, um, am I being absurd to even think that it could happen on a large level? Um, Would it, what effects might that have? Would it be something that uh, a church or a conference or say a regional conference inside a union would be a part of is there is there something that um, we could take your um, model and uh, implement it in some way you know that's the thing i've sort of been wrestling with uh since i wrote the uh <laughs> since i wrote the piece yeah. uh is is how do you actually make this happen and and i'm the the thing that i'm wrestling with is this the difference between the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and uh, here is that they engaged in that process immediately after apartheid was dismantled. Yeah. So they didn't have to wrestle with the question of blame that we would have to wrestle with because it was over. We're talking. Because 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 we're now two, three generations removed from um, and even further, if we're talking about nationally, I'm just talking about in the church. We're, we're two, three generations removed from the people who did the bad thing. Yeah. Uh, they were not. Uh, well, they were because apartheid had been going on for so long, but they were right at that moment where you were most able to try and address the sure. issue. I would. Uh, I would say that we're sort of still in that moment because number one, it hasn't been that long ago, but also, and this is the thing that I think people tend to forget. Fresh injustices are happening every day Mm -hmm. in Adventism and in our nation. So for example, I saw racism at the seminary when I was there and that was 10 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so there, so there's new, there are new things that are happening that continue to need to be addressed. Here's what would have to happen, I think, in order for a truth and reconciliation commission to, to really be something that can occur. 
everybody would have to come to the table willing to let go, let go of power, let go of control, let go of money, let go of prestige. They'd all have to come to the table willing to let go. And I would argue that that has to come from the oppressor group before it comes from the oppressed. Yeah. Because, because the oppressed are always letting go. <laughs> that's not a posture. That's not a posture that the oppressed have to worry about. And that's something that has to be real and it has to be genuine and it has to be exhibited before. And that's why it won't happen. Well, that's a um, depressing thought. (laughs) (laughs) I I am not here. I'm not here to to tell happy stories. I'm not even here. I'm not even here to be successful. This is something I've had to learn in, in, in my life, Alex, is that the goal for me is not necessarily to be successful. If there were a truth and reconciliation commission in Adventism, it'd be a great and wonderful thing. But that's not the point. Yeah. The point is that the thing needs to be said. Mm-hmm. What, what the church does with it, what the culture does with it, what you do with it. Uh, whether you're a listener to this podcast or you, Alexander Carpenter, what you do with it after I say it is not my concern. I mean, I would love for you to agree. I would love for the church to to engage in this process. But the point isn't for me to try to force the church to do it. The The point is for me to say what I believe to be the truth. To say what it is I believe needs to be said. And then it's up to you whether you will accept it or not and do something with it. Yeah. But you'll, you'll, you'll run yourself ragged trying to make it happen. You'll drive yourself crazy trying to make it so. And, and, and for those who believe it is their calling to try and make it so, I'm not telling you you're wrong. <laughs> I'm just telling you that from my perspective and from where I sit, in the in the structure my job is to just say this is what it is are you going to do something about it are you going to be more of what jesus would call us to be if your answer is no then your answer is no and and, and that's on you that's not on me you know um perhaps it's a bottom up approach and not a top down approach and by that i mean um we have to maybe return a little bit to the um, pietistic part of Adventism where the individual um, thinks about their own behaviors and Mm -hmm. beliefs. And so they maybe have to hold a little truth and reconciliation commission um, between them and someone else and the Holy spirit and, and think about, the sort of subconscious assumptions um, and the privileges that um, especially white Adventists have and um, kind of think about how that affects um, their participation in a spiritual community. Well, I would, I would argue that the truth and reconciliation, regardless of whether it happens at an institutional level, um, it would need to happen at a personal level 
regardless. Yeah. Uh, it would have to happen at an individual level regardless because the institution could do it. And if, and if the people at the bottom didn't care about it, then such that they were willing to do it themselves, then it wouldn't matter. Um, much in the same way, much in the same way that churches are churches are now arguing with the broader institution about other issues that we would agree with, you know, what I mean? and, 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 and we say, you know, more power to them for, for be, being willing to stand up to the institution. It, it, the same thing would happen if the institution decided to do something that I agreed with. If, if people at the bottom didn't care or just outright, you know, decided that they weren't going to be a part of it then then it, it's a it's a it's a fool's errand either way so i would want every single individual person adventist american citizen to wrestle with these types of questions within themselves because that's the way that's the way change is really going to come and and if something that i say or something that you say or something that somebody says causes even one person to reconsider their own place in the world and, and, and make a decision to try and do better. That's success to me. Hmm. Not whether the Adventist church does a truth, truth and reconciliation commission. Well, um, I really appreciate your, um, kind of leading me through this discussion and, and um, your um, kind of building these different ideas together. Um, I don't want to leave us on um, a, uh, uh, um, leave us just talking about um a challenge i'd love for you to maybe give us a little sense of hope um so is there anything that's giving you hope are you seeing light break through hmm. but, but the 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 uh the troll in me wants to go no but the <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> so so there, there 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 are a couple of things there are a couple of legitimate things that give me hope number one is the individuals who do what I just said. Sure. Um, I hear from them and talk with them. I wouldn't say all the time. It's not a vast movement, but uh, those, those voices do get to me and that gives me hope. Uh, what gives me hope are the people who are unwilling to take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. The, the people and the movements who have sprung up in the last five years. And I'm, and I'm thinking specifically about zeal and, and Adventists for social justice and, and, and groups like that. Um, and the mm -hmm. one project that, that are saying, no, we're going to create a space that, that does what we want to see done. Like I'm with that. I'm behind that because it, it shows me that number one, there are like-minded people in the world, but also that people are willing to carve out a space if a space won't be granted to them. They will make seats at the table 
if someone won't pull out a chair. Yeah. And I'm and I'm behind that. Um, I am behind. I love what Adventist Forum is going to be doing. Uh, this is a shameless plug, but uh, yes, let's do um, it. <laughs> I love what Adventist Forum is going to be doing this September at their conference uh, in Orlando at Advent Health University, where I teach. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love that they're willing to consider this idea and open and open the, the space for places and people who normally don't come into the Adventist Forum framework. Yeah, like I'm excited about that. Um, because, because that's about, that's about trying to create space at the table for people to be heard. And if there's anything that gives me hope is that the space is, is being created. We're in environments where people are determining that for themselves. If that space won't be given to them, where that space is being given to them. I'm, I'm thankful to, to spectrum for my little, my little corner once a, once a month to, to, to do this type of work. Um, I'm appreciative of it. Uh, and as long as those messages keep getting out there, uh, I'll always have a sense of hope. And then at the end of the day, uh, I'm, I'm a committed Christian. I mean, my hope is always going to be in an omnipotent and, and, a beneficent God that I believe in that cares about the oppressed. Yeah. And, and so this work I know will continue because I believe that God is behind it. And so uh, even when, even when, you know, my, my brain wants to say, no, uh, there's nothing out there that's giving me hope. I always come back to this very cliched notion, but it's also a very true notion that my hope is not in, you know, the general conference. My hope is not in spectrum. My hope is not in, uh, you know, the average white Adventist to hear what I'm saying and believe my hope is in the spirit of God that moves and does miracles and does great and powerful things. And that's the thing that makes me believe that this can happen. Well, thank you so much for sharing that hope with me and all of our listeners. Thank you for having me, Alex. It is always a pleasure. And uh, I'm grateful for the work that you guys are doing here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The king.